Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Julia Mawes, was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013 while pregnant. Following the birth of a healthy baby boy, Julia did tests she couldn't do while pregnant and discovered the cancer had spread to her brain, liver, and bones. The doctor who looked after her at that time made a huge impression on her. And many years later, when he retired, she says, I did move back to St. Louis and went back to my first oncologist. Although a couple months later, he he told me that he was leaving and he broke my heart. (laughs) I told him that was the hardest breakup I have ever experienced. Here is the extraordinary story of an extraordinary woman. Here is the story of Julia Mawes. Julia, you're very welcome to the show. I'm really pleased that you could make the time to have this conversation with me today. And I want to start with your story, which is quite unique, because when we think of breast cancer, we think of women largely in their 50s, but yours was a very different story. Tell us what happened and when this journey began for you. Thank you for having me. It it is true that the median age for breast cancer is in their 50s or maybe even 60s. But it's also true that it, it's a disease that does affect younger women as well. I was 29 when I was diagnosed and I'm by no means the youngest person I know to have been diagnosed. So yes, I was 29 and I was pregnant. I think that was even more impactful. I was very happy to be having a baby. It was a very happy time in my life. And I I found a lump in my breast. And my doctor, my my OBGYN, she she took it very seriously and and she believed me, which is often not the case for young women. We often have to convince our doctors that it's possible for a young woman to have breast cancer. But my doctor was wonderful and she believed me and she she sent me in for tests right away. And that was a very long day that went from test to test, ended with a diagnosis. So you're pregnant and you've got this disease. And of course, the treatment is terrifying because you're looking at chemotherapy and radiotherapy and all kinds of other things. But you're pregnant How did you navigate that journey? Yes, you're exactly right. That was the craziest thing ever. At the time, I I did not know this, but the standard of care for a woman that is pregnant, that is diagnosed with breast cancer and other cancers is usually chemotherapy. And I mean, that was really hard to accept. I remember I told my doctor, I am not drinking coffee what do you mean I have to put poison through my veins? And and I mean, I pushed back. I First, I wanted surgery. I, I wanted to expose my baby to the least amount of harm as possible. And, and they convinced me with studies. And I also met people that had been through this during pregnancy. And they convinced me that I had the best shot with chemo and my baby had the best shot with me having chemo. So that that was what I did. And it, it also happens to be one of the most toxic chemotherapies that cancer patients receive. 
something that's very old school and has been given for, for many decades and for multiple cancers, adriamycin, also called the red devil. So what happened next? You, you started on this therapy. You had a lot of mixed feelings about it. I'm sure your family had a lot of mixed feelings about you doing this. What happened next? Yes, I, I did go through with the four cycles of adriamycin and cytoxin. When I was diagnosed, I was 23 weeks pregnant. So I received four cycles, three weeks apart, and they, they were all during the pregnancy. I finished my last treatment in early July, and my baby was due in August, early August. At the end of July, when I was already 37 weeks, we decided that I would be induced. My breast cancer subtype was HER2 positive and I, I couldn't take those drugs while pregnant. So it was important to start on their Herceptin and, and the targeted therapy as soon as possible. So I was induced. I delivered my baby at 37 weeks. He was born healthy, full-term, full of hair, <laughs> um, almost uh, making up for the fact that I had no hair when he was born. I mean, that was a very emotional day because there were, I mean, we had images and ultrasound and all that, but there were all these doubts. Is everything, you know, going to be okay? He had all his fingers. He had, you know, all his organs were working and that was a big fear. And, and thankfully he was great. And and I was taken to imaging, which to take to to do scans that I couldn't do while pregnant. I we knew I had cancer in my breast, and we knew that my lymph nodes had cancer, but we couldn't image the rest of my body. And I had a lot of of pain, of back pain, and and I I really had a feeling that my cancer had spread. I did speak with my doctor about it and there was really nothing he could have done if we did confirm metastasis at that time. So now that I think about it, you know, when he didn't give too much attention to that fear, at the time I felt ignored, but maybe it would have been worse <laughs> to know because you know, I, I was pregnant and of course I wasn't going to do things that were known to be harmful for my baby. But then just having that extra weight would have been worse. So who knows? But but after the delivery, I could do scans that I couldn't do while pregnant. And that was when we confirmed that I did have widespread metastatic disease all throughout my bones, in my liver and in my brain. Being a mom is always challenging, even at the best of times, because you just delivered this baby, you've gone through all those hormonal changes, etc. Now here you were, not only a new mom with all of that, but also the weight of a cancer that was going to challenge you for the foreseeable future. I'm in awe of the fact that you are here to tell the story, but tell us what that was like in the moment. I'm in awe of the fact that I'm here to tell this story. Let me just stop by saying that. But so, yes, 
those first few days and and weeks and months after the metastatic diagnosis were very, very difficult. I had a, a newborn and he was perfect and I loved him very much, but I, I didn't want him to depend on me. I wanted him to love everyone else and be able to be okay without me. So that, you know, those were some very hard times. I got really sick also. My heart was compromised from the chemotherapy and I went to the hospital and was in a lot of trouble. But I had excellent medical care and and I also was lucky. And things started to improve. And eventually I was able to go back on the treatments and I started responding to the therapy and that baby is now in third grade he will be nine years old (laughs) this summer so yeah you talk about excellent medical care we're very interested in the quality of medical care that patients receive in this and many other chronic and life-limiting illnesses what made your care excellent how can we replicate that experience for other people So I had excellent insurance. I think that's the first thing. I live in the United States and that's a a big factor. There is no safety net plan insurance coverage. People go into bankruptcy if they don't have the resources. I had a good job. I had excellent insurance that covered these very expensive therapies. And I lived in a in a city that had a, a comprehensive cancer center with very, very like world-renowned oncologists and researchers, and I had access to to these these people and 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 ideas and services. I think that was really. I think that's the the bigger picture. On a smaller, maybe more personal level, the humans that took care of me were amazing people. And I was lucky that the connections that we created were very real, very honest, uh, very deep. They knew me well. They listened to me. They respected my wishes. They, they, they really, really worked very hard to make the best with the resources that they had. Excellent insurance, having those resources was clearly important, but also the fact that you were getting care in which it seemed selfless and respectful, which made the difference to you. Can you remember particular interactions that really highlighted this experience for you? Yes, I remember many. (laughs) These people were some of the most important people in my life to this day. The the oncologist that told me my metastatic diagnosis, he had not cared for me during my pregnancy. He had followed my care, but I had wanted to receive the infusions at the hospital where my high-risk OBGYN was. So he, at the big academic center, was in touch with my other oncologist. And But once I had my baby, I I went to his hospital and I went in 
uh, to receive the results. And and he sat with me and, and my husband at the time and my mom and, and he cried with us. You know, he he started the visit wanting to see pictures of my newborn baby. He asked how I was recovering from the pregnancy and he had to tell me that I, I had widespread metastatic disease. <laughs> oh, and he, he he's a wonderful person. He he did that with with his heart. You say some very some very poignant and interesting things. First of all, congratulations. You obviously found the right doctor, which was fabulous, a right doctor for you. But he cried with you. He wanted to see pictures of this baby. He congratulated you on the birth of your child, which was so important. These are, these are important touches. And they felt important because he was going to do something that was very technical, ultimately, to try and fix the problem that you had. But he started from a very different basis. He started from the basis of actually seeing you, respecting you, and reflecting back to you where you were on your journey so that he could walk alongside you, which was so important. So then on the technical side, how did he pivot to be much more technical? How did, he, how did you recognize that this man had the expertise that you needed? As I think of all the things that we talked about that day, I wonder like how much time we really spent together because as I said, there was the conversation about my pregnancy and my baby and how I was feeling. And then the conversation about the scans with the results and then in detail of where there's metastasis, what it means, my pain. He told me, I can't believe you were walking around with the amount of bone metastasis that you have. And you were walking around carrying a baby inside you. And here's a prescription for morphine (laughs) because I don't know how you're doing this. And we also had a conversation about my specific diagnosis in terms of subtypes and what the next medications would be and and what the plan was and what the local therapy was going to be. And he talked about his research. And I remember thinking this was like really cool at the time. And he was going to take my biopsy and put it on a mouse and try to grow my tumor in the lab and see how different drugs would work on the mice. And this sounds like we spent the whole day together, right? That's a lot of talk. Yeah, I mean, and I had done some research on him. I knew he really was a world-renowned and still is a world-renowned breast um, oncologist and very respected mentoring people all over the world. Yeah, I knew I was lucky. You were lucky in the sense that here was somebody who has a very rare skill, the ability to interact with people, to make them feel comfortable at a human level, but also somebody who had this technical brilliance to help you through your condition and to translate for you what was going on in his mind and in his laboratory and in his clinic to help fix the problem that you had. So that sounds like a very special human being, somebody who I think 
is a born healer, which is a, an unusual thing, even in the business, if you want to call it that, of medicine. So let's take the journey from that point on. So here you are, you'd had the baby, you are now facing this future of dealing with metastatic cancer. What happened next? So I was put on on HER2 targeted therapy and we our hope was, I remember my mom asked him, how long does she have to live? And he told her she has never been exposed to HER2 therapy. So if I told you a number, I would be making that up because I really have no idea not knowing how she responds to the therapy that is very specific to her type of cancer. So we really need to wait and see how she does in the next few months and see what happens with with this therapy because whatever I tell you today will be completely made up. It really depends on how this targeted treatment works and and as you probably know, her two positive breast cancer was a, a death sentence in the until the late 90s. And with the discovery of Herceptin and, and all the her two drugs that have been developed since, it's now the most treatable type of breast cancer. So it went from one extreme to the other extreme. That said, there's still people that do have her to positive breast cancer that doesn't respond so well. So that's why he said, I can't tell you. And things got very complicated before they got better. I The, the brain metastasis wasn't uh, something that we found out in that whole body scan. I had to do a, a brain scan. And again, I am so grateful for him because brain imaging is not something that's always done. But he knew that I was young, that my cancer was very aggressive, and that this subtype often goes to the brain. So he proactively, you know, chose to do a scan and that found something that I didn't even have, that I was completely asymptomatic for. We were able to address that when it was still very small and and treatable. And, And then I had the heart problems and and I was very sick and I used to live in the Midwest. This was in St. Louis and it was the beginning of the winter. And when my heart started failing, we thought I I had months to live. And we told my doctor, we have this crazy idea of moving to Florida because if this is the end of her life, then why are we going to stay here? And is that a crazy idea? And he said, it is a crazy idea, but I like this crazy idea. I think it's a good idea. I think that the, how you live your life is important. And then we said, do you know someone in Miami that could treat me? And he said, I do know someone in Miami. My mentor my, from my fellowship and studies is the head of breast cancer at the University of Miami. And he happens to be married to a cardiologist. So the two of them will take care of you, uh, your cancer and your heart. And yeah, so that happened. I lived in Miami for about six months when I was very sick. And this is another 
pair of doctors that I am very indebted to, and they continued the healing and they, they really saved my life. I mean, like literally I was in the ICU and, and they, they were there caring for me and, and saving my life. To found one doctor like that must have been amazing, but to find two more uh, was a great gift from the universe to you, I would think. I think you agree with that. So this was a fantastic thing that happened in the sense that they helped you through a very difficult time when the prognosis, as you say, was very guarded because at that point, nobody knew what was going to happen next, but clearly good things happened. So tell us what happened after that. Yeah, so for a while, I had to be off treatment completely for the cancer, and it was very complicated. The heart was very slow to recover, and the med- the medications that I had to take would lower my blood pressure, and I already had low blood pressure. They're often given to lower blood pressure, but I was taking them because my muscle and the heart just wasn't pumping blood. and. Anyway, it was a long process and I was off chemo for a long time and that was scary. But I eventually, my my heart started improving. They felt it was okay to put me back on chemotherapy, not her to targeted therapy for a long time though. And then I did move back to St. Louis and went back to my first oncologist. Although a couple months later, he he told me that he was leaving and he broke my heart. <laughs> I told him that was the hardest breakup I have ever experienced. He left me in the hands of another wonderful doctor. As you were saying that I was lucky to have found two more, I was thinking, well, I, I actually have found like four more after that. I, I am very, very lucky in, in the doctors that have come across my life. I've had many complications, but the, the doctors have been as, as good or better than the problems. <laughs> it's now some years since your first diagnosis. You're saying your, your son is now nine years old, which is really wonderful news. And you've gone through all of this. Now I'm beginning to ask the question, how, Julia, do you go on to do all the other things that you've done, having carried this weight on your shoulder Mm. for nine years. So what is the secret, please? Yeah. So in the beginning, I actually kept working. It was important for me to have this one thing that was not cancer. (laughs) And it was not emotional with a child or anything like that. It was a job, right? And it kept me busy and it and I worked for a while and it, it was very important for me to do that when I did. And at some point, something switched and I really needed to change my focus to my healing and my health. And, and I left my career. So I spent a, a long time only focused on my health and on my son. And then he started growing up and spending more time at school and I had some free time and one of my doctors once asked me to share my story at a fundraiser for for his research and I I did and that was 
very impactful. My story is very tragic and inspiring at the same time. There are all these ups and downs and and it it did raise a lot of money at that event. And and I realized that there if there are good things that can come from this tragedy, then I I will do them. I will help a newly diagnosed person. I will share my story and get people to give money to research. I will brainstorm with a researcher about how to make their work more impactful. I if I can get any lemonade out of these lemons, I will do it. I'm still scratching my head because you had the dread devil, you had all of these other toxic treatments, you were in intensive care, you had cardiomyopathy, you had a whole bunch of other things. Where did you get the energy to then regenerate yourself in the way that you have? And looking at you now, I and we're we're talking on video, I can't tell the difference between you and somebody who's had a very uneventful life. So mm-hmm. what what is it that you think has sustained you? Where does this energy come from? Thank you. I think a lot of time has passed. So all of this that we have just discussed has been nine years of my life. It will be nine years in April of this year. So my my son will, will be nine this summer. And it's been a long time. You know, there were there were times where I was really sick and I did not do much at all. And depending on what treatment I'm on, what I'm going through, it's possible to do more or less. And I've I've really learned to listen to my body and respect what my limits are and put the energy where where I want it and save it when I don't want to spend it. You said when you were pregnant that you didn't even drink coffee. So you must look after yourself physically. You must look after yourself very well. Are there particular things that you want to share about that? So I, I think that's something that newly diagnosed people often ask about. And But I don't think I, I, I think my only answer is moderation, moderation for everything. I eat healthy, but I'm not a vegetarian. I will have sugar if I feel like having dessert. I will have a glass of wine if I want to celebrate. I think so. It may not even be like top level taking care of myself, but it's taking care of of my whole self, also my my wishes and my desires and and. And all of it. And I I do listen to the science, but I, I do believe that sometimes there are things that may not be the most indicated, like having sugar or things like that. But I I have my doctors have always supported this lifestyle of taking care of myself, but still not keeping anything that will bring me joy. Julia Mao is, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of this story. There's so much more that I would love to explore with you, but I want to be very respectful of your time. You've been extraordinarily generous in the time that you've given us today, but also in sharing so much of this very poignant story and telling us something about what we could do 
both as patients, but also as healthcare practitioners to make this journey easier for others and for ourselves in those, those of us who want to be of some use and some help to our patients. Thank you very much. And we wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design.com.